Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Fair Dowdy. And I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And Dablina, I have a question for you. What's that? Have you ever kept a travel journal? I mean, I know you like to travel a lot. I have kept, well, I've attempted to, but I usually end up getting them. I have a collection of beautiful journals that I've bought throughout the years and I end up taking <laughs> them started. and I fill out a page and then I realize there's this big competition between actually wanting to do things and having time to write about the things while I'm on vacation. And then when you get back, you get so busy that you just don't have time to re-record everything. It happens to me too. If I'm lucky, I'll start writing on the plane ride home and maybe fill in the briefest details. So try to imagine trying to keep a travel journal for 40 years now. And imagine that your expeditions included not just classic traveler high points, you know, meals you ate, monuments you saw, people you met, that kind of thing, but events like wars and rebellions and pirate attacks. I mean, imagine having time for that. I mean, I think I would make time to write about a pirate attack. But <laughs> that would not. that would warrant an entry for sure. So our subject today, Evlia Chelebi, is a 17th century Ottoman gentleman, and he's considered by many people to be one of the world's greatest travelers and, by extension, one of the world's greatest travel writers. He kept a 2,400 folio record of his journeys. He called it the Sehatnami, or Book of Travels, and it's the longest travel account in Islamic literature, maybe even the longest travel account in the world. And from about age 30 until his death in his 70s, Evlia was on the move, and for as long as he traveled, he kept on writing, covering his journeys across rivers of ice in the far northern reaches of the Ottoman Empire to the Sahara Desert and the Nile River in the south. And because Evlia went to places that many others didn't even bother to visit or at least document, his record has become a key source for archaeologists, geographers, and cultural historians. And that's why, in addition to discussing high points from Evlia's remarkable travels, we're also going to talk about the strange history of the Sehatname, which at nearly 400 years old is only now becoming an item of world interest. But before we get to that, there's the matter of Evlia's homebound years. Of course, he didn't start traveling until he was about 30. So we mentioned Evlia was a gentleman, and in fact, his name, Chelebi, means gentleman. So appropriately enough, he grew up in the cultured atmosphere of the Ottoman court, where his father was the sultan's chief goldsmith. And his mother was an Abkhazian, possibly a slave girl, given to the goldsmith in marriage by the sultan, who told him, Grand Aga, you're an old man, but God willing, from this maiden, you will have an angel-like, world-adorning son. And sure enough, Evliya was born nine months, ten days after that, in 1611 in Istanbul. And he started his education, as other uh, children of his class would have, at the madrasa, which was a Arabic school where he would have learned to recite the Quran, uh, become a prayer caller. And he would have also studied languages, too, Turkish, Persian, Arabic, plus Greek and Latin and stories of Roman emperors and Alexander the Great that he picked up from the non-Muslims who were in his father's gold shop. 
And when he wasn't studying, Evlia still learned in a different way. He roamed Istanbul watching artisans, exploring mosques, and occasionally even attending court with his father. By his teens, Evlia could recite the entire Koran from memory. This took him about eight hours to do, and he'd do it every single Thursday. And he said he was proud to have maintained this tradition through his life. It was during one of those recitations, in fact, that he got kind of his big break, in a sense. During a recital, Evlia was summoned by the reigning sultan, Murad IV, who asked him how long his recitations took. And eight hours must have seemed like a really good answer to him because the sultan essentially then told him that they were going to be friends. Okay, so what does being friends with the sultan really entail? To me, it sounds a bit like pursuing a higher education because Evlia was soon set up with a tutor, a calligraphy master, a spiritual advisor, a music teacher for music and singing, a grammar instructor, plus his old master for continued Quran studies. And so his job essentially became to read and write, you know, study during the day and night, refine his manners, dress nicely, and recite entertaining things for the Sultan, really showing off his learning. And he, he gives a sampling of what this usually involved in his book of travels. He recounts an early meeting where he he asked the sultan, okay, well, what exactly do you want to hear me recite? You know, literature, I can do Persian, Arabic, Turkish, Hebrew, Syriac, Greek, maybe a medley of musical forms, maybe a selection of different kinds of verse poetry. The sultan actually even calls him out on showing off so much because in between cataloging all this knowledge, this huge platter of, of things he can recite for the sultan, he'd throw in puns and make witty remarks, some of them kind of risque, and polished the whole performance off by somersaulting out of the room. I mean, this kid this kid knew how to put on a show, for sure. So his next two years at court involved lots of study, beautiful books, calligraphy practice, and those audiences with the sultan, and fancy presents as well. A silver ink pot studded with jewels was one notable one, and also a writing board inlaid with mother of pearl. Good and, accessories for the scholar. Yeah, a gem-encrusted back scratcher. That's a bonus. <laughs> Also handy. Uh, but he became especially valued when Murad IV was feeling down since he could crack him up with his near constant jokes. Courtiers would hurry Evlia in and Murad would say, quote, look, the dispeller of woe has arrived. Sometimes his duties would be a little more solemn, Quran recitations, leading calls to prayer, singing sad songs, things like that. Others were more outrageous, such as supervising the Sultan's wrestling matches and avoiding vomiting on the sultan when he'd pick him up and spin him around. Which sounds pretty nerve-wracking, not something you'd want to do to the sultan. So it seems like with such a prestigious position, though, minus the spinning, of course, Evliya would really enjoy every moment spent in his hometown of Istanbul and at the palace. But from about age 20 onward, he was itching to get away. He wanted to get outside of the city. He had only visited towns just outside of the city walls. So to make up for that, since he didn't have travel magazines to read, he'd quiz dervishes about their travels and learn about the seven climes, the four quarters of the earth, really just um, make the travel bug he already had really even more intense, ready to go. In addition to his court connection, Evlia had family pressures keeping him at home, though, as well. In an early book, he wonders... 
quote, how to get free of pressure from mother and father and teacher and brother. I think that's probably a sentiment a lot of people can relate to. It must have been on his mind a lot because when Evelia was in his early 20s, he had a dream, but not just a dream. It was a dream vision. Which appears sometimes in podcasts, I've noticed. They do. They've popped up recently, I feel like, now and again. But in this particular dream, he found himself with early Islamic saints and the prophet Muhammad, who asked Evliya to call the morning prayer. After he was done, Evliya went back before the prophet to ask for shafat, or intercession, but messed up and asked instead for a similar-sounding word in Ottoman Turkish, seyahat, or travel. So Muhammad promises him both, plus visits to the tombs of saints and prophets. Which do end up coming along with his later travels. So according to the Ottoman historian Caroline Finkel, this type of dream vision is a common occurrence of literature from this time, and one that Evliya himself used in later accounts of his travels. But she also notes that in this case, he sounds especially genuine, like it really was a life-changing moment for him. Not that he woke up from his dream and started packing, though. It still took about 10 years before Evliya could get away, uh, the first time accompanied by a friend visiting nearby Bursa. And on the trip back home, he decided not to tell his folks, but to set out again and head off to the North Anatolian coast um, to, to tour that region a little bit. Since he was traveling with a newly appointed governor, this also started a trend of journeying in the entourage of various public officials. So he'd serve various functions along the way, including things like prayer caller, tax collector, courier envoy, customs clerk, even imam. Basically anything that allowed him to tour with a retinue or run specific errands to places that he was interested in. Imagine a more practical version of his work for the sultan, and that's kind of what it was. Yeah, and it afforded him not only free travel, of course, a job that goes along with traveling, but a certain amount of protection, too. You've got to imagine bandits in the woods and rebels and pirates, of course, as we've already mentioned. So traveling with a group like this would have been a a safer way to go. So Evelia eventually began calling himself, despite all those other professions Diblina just rattled off, world traveler and boon companion to mankind, which I think sums him up pretty well. It does. Many of his journeys were in the company of his mother's kinsman, the one-time Grand Vizier Melik Ahmed Pasha, and they traveled to modern Ukraine, Sofia, Iran, Iraq, Transylvania, Wallachia and Moldavia, Poland, Bosnia, just a lot of places all over the place. place. And Evlia's range also starts to sound more impressive when you consider he was usually taking the hard way on these travels on horseback. After a 1641 shipwreck in the Black Sea, um, he was kind of put off sea travel. and Swore it off completely. All of his expeditions were overland. When he finally hopped on a boat about 30 years later, attempting to visit Cyprus, he was quickly rewarded with that pirate attack that we mentioned before. So it turned out that sea travel was just not for him. Out of commission for all sea travel. And after Melek Ahmed died in 1662, Evlia no longer had this major patron, this man who he was mostly traveling with. But 
according to Carolyn Finkel's article on him in History Today, he also didn't have anything stopping him anymore from going exactly where he pleased. So he ended up going to work as a cavalry man and serving in several major engagements before taking part in a really notable peace mission to Vienna, which established a 20-year truce between the Habsburgs and the Ottomans. And Evely's account of his trip to Vienna is really one of the best-loved parts of the Book of Travels because it's so full of both day-to-day beauties and the horrors of the 17th century. Yeah, for example, he's impressed by the organ at St. Stephen's and notes that it, quote, fills the lungs with blood and the eyes with tears. But he's also really taken by an operation to remove a bullet from a man's head and the doctoring that he himself receives to stabilize three teeth that had been hit by a javelin. And he's kind of scandalized by social customs he sees when he's in Vienna. For instance, men and women socializing together in public, women socializing without their husbands present. But at the same time, even though this clearly disturbs him, he finds no problems talking with and even befriending individual Europeans. So after this epic trip to Vienna, Evlia moved up to Crimea, up the Volga, to Kazan, and then briefly back to Istanbul. These trips back to Istanbul are really, really short and um, come with large spans of travel in between. By 1668, he visited Greece. This is another really famous part of the Book of Travels because he described the Parthenon, which was then functioning as a mosque. And the reason why this account is so particularly important and why the detail is so valued is because just about 20 years after Evlia saw the Parthenon, the building was, of course, blown up when a cannon ignited an Ottoman munition stump. I mean, sometimes it's easy to forget that the ruined Parthenon didn't used to be quite as ruined as it is today. So true. In 1669, he saw the Ottomans take a Cretan fortress after a 21-year siege, and he had the honor of calling the first prayer there. And then in 1671, at about age 60, he embarked on his pilgrimage to Mecca, again dreaming of blessings, and this time from his father and his former teacher. And it's interesting, too. He did, I mean, of course, for a man who traveled so much and who was so devout, it seems like he would have tried to get to Mecca earlier in his life. He did try to go. He had events waylay him. So this was a real lifetime goal to finally be making it to Mecca. And when he did it, he went with three companions, eight servants, and 15 Arabian horses. So Evlia ended up spending twice the time that a normal trip from Istanbul to Mecca would take Taking to get the there. the long road. <laughs> After his pilgrimage, Evlia settled in Cairo, surveyed the city, and made a short attempt to find the source of the Nile. But he died around 1684, likely in Cairo, though the exact date and location are still unknown. Okay, so now that we've covered in brief, of course... Evelia's 40 years of travel. What did he have to say about all these places? What made what he had to say so unique in the first place? And to a certain extent, his work is fairly formulaic. In towns or cities, he'll write about topography, fortifications, monuments, you know, what you might expect from a newcomer to a town. But he'll also talk about dress and cuisine, occupations, class structure, medicine, naming customs, speech, literature, hygiene, which, by the way, he was 
really pretty into. He had his slaves at one point clean out a public bathhouse for the benefit of the people. He just thought it was too gross. And then in the countryside, he sort of stuck to a formula, too, kind of the in-between parts of his travel, after all. And he'd talk about the landscape, how long it took to get somewhere, the direction he was headed, and any high points, like saints' tombs along the way. But, and this is the important part. With all the cataloging, usually comes an anecdote, a conversation he has with a local authority or a legend. In many cases, his is the only record of notable people or strange customs in a given area. Because other people just didn't write it down. And like any good travel writer, some of the neatest examples of anecdotes have to do with one of our favorite things, Food. food writing. So, for instance, he broods over whether it's religiously acceptable to eat horse meat with Tatars and um, questions that a bit. And another funny example, he assumes that it's probably okay to eat giraffe meat with the people in Sudan. He actually writes, God willing, it is permitted. I have not found a discussion of it in the sources. He also claims to have found practicing cannibals among the Kalmyks, who are Western Mongols, who he says would eat their dead to honor them. And perhaps most memorably, he talks about a Circassian village custom of interring a dead body in a wooden box in a hollow tree. So if the bees made honey, that meant that the soul would go to heaven. But unfortunately for Evlia, he experiences this tradition firsthand after he accepts some rather hairy honey from a local and ends up learning that it's honey from a hive that was built on a dead man's crotch. He has an appropriately freaking out kind of reaction to to learning this. But Evlia Chelebi biographer Robert Dankoff also notes that the further out on the frontier Evlia gets, the more remarkable his stories. And I mean, I don't know if we should consider that are the cannibals and the honey ones, kind of in that end of the spectrum. But some of the things that sound really shocking are, of course, true. He talks about female circumcision, for instance. But others are clearly made up. He includes fake trips to Western Europe, ones with ridiculously short timelines, especially considering Evlia and what we can already assume about how he preferred to travel, which was leisurely. Um, And then also folk tales that are obviously not true and they're presented as fact. And I think this is interesting though. According to Dankov, it wasn't like Evelia was trying to pull one over on his readers. He suggests that the readers would have immediately recognized these as fiction, just like modern readers would. And they were really just included to entertain, something that doesn't exactly fit, I guess, with our notions of travel writing today. (laughs) You don't want to just make things up, but I I like it too. Something about that appeals to me. Yeah, well, I feel like nowadays people want to know. They really want to know whether this is journalistic, is it true, or is it something that's made up and it has to fall in either camp. But the combination of the two does sound sort of interesting. So considering the importance of the Book of Travels as a geographic document, a cultural archive, and just a bounty of really well-told stories, you'd figure it would be widely available, but that is not the case. Though Evlia certainly considered an audience in his writing, likely people who were well-off, educated Ottomans like himself, that's really not how it went down. After his death, the manuscript stayed in private collections in Cairo until 1742, when it was given to the chief black eunuch, who was one of the highest officials at Ottoman court, and he realized that it was pure gold and ordered up more copies of it right away. 
excerpts of these copies were eventually printed in Ottoman Turkish now, which is kind of like middle English for modern Turkish. Yeah, apparently pretty impossible to read for anybody but scholars. Exactly. And it was translated into English as well. So the Book of Travels became known for Book One, which surveys Istanbul, but the document as a whole was considered pretty much unimportant. Not worth translating the whole thing. So by the late 1800s, it was printed in its entirety. But at that point, the Sultan considered some parts too too risky and had large sections censored. And that was really the only thing that people had to work with for about a century. Finally, in the mid-1990s, it was transcribed in its entirety, into modern Turkish. Still, there are only extracts available in English. I mean, when I first learned about this guy, I immediately checked my library, expecting to be able to find a copy, and then I learned, like, good luck. But another holdup with people, I guess, studying the whole manuscript, studying the whole piece of literature, is it's really huge. In his biography of Evlia, Robert Dankoff writes that, quote, the gigantic scope of the work has deterred investigators from analyzing its structure beyond a mere enumeration of its basic contents. Characteristically, scholars have approached the Seahatnami as though it were a huge mine with numerous unconnected passageways. So what I take away from this is that because it does have so many relevant details to very specific areas of study like botany or food in, um, I don't know, the Ukraine or something like that, people will go in and look for what concerns their own work and not really consider the whole work and the life behind it. But times are changing, and Evlia's kind of on his way up. He was named a UNESCO Man of the Year in 2011, and a trail through Western Turkey now follows the first stage of his 1671 pilgrimage. And it's meant to encourage historic and natural preservation, promote sustainable tourism, and also to advance indigenous horse breeds. Since it's a horse trail. It's called the Evlia Celebi Way. And I think you listened to a recording of a talk given by Caroline Finkel about this, right? Yeah, it was a talk given at the Royal Asiatic Society. And she said that when she was scouting out this trail, you know, trying to establish it with a group of other interested people, they found that a lot of the local folks along the way not only still knew who Evlia Chelebi was, but still knew what he had written about their villages. You know, 400 years earlier, it reminded me, I don't know, maybe the best comparison we could make would be Lewis and Clark or something, knowing about the region they passed through if you still live in that region. But this is 400 years ago, which definitely puts a puts a spin on the whole thing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I have one final point, too, I want to make about travel writing in general. I was trying to think about what makes good travel writing. We've already established that we can't even keep, you know, a week of journals <laughs> when, when we go on vacations. But I do like reading travel writing. And I think that really strong travel writing usually does have all of those details, but has a strong enough presence behind it that somehow it all feels unified without feeling like, oh, I'm just reading about what this person is thinking and going through. And I yeah. mean, what, what appeals to you about good travel writing? Well, it makes me kind of think about what we were saying about Evlia. I mean, what really appeals to me is when a person becomes a part of a place. They're not just observing and, you know, telling you what they're seeing and what they're tasting and whatever they're doing. They're talking to people and not just talking to people, but maybe becoming friends with the people, um, you know, forming relationships with them and really becoming immersed in the culture. Because I think... 
um, you know, that's what makes a really good trip. That's what really makes me want to go on a trip is knowing, like, hey, I could become part of this place, and this is what it's really like. Well, and that kind of writing is what sets a good travel narrative uh, apart from just a guidebook or something where it's just telling you what you need to go see. There's no personality behind it. And I think one of the reasons why Evlia is such a, a strong travel writer and while why he is so appealing after all these years is that even though he was very, you know, an elite man, he was well-off, well-educated, he was uh, uh, devoted to his empire, but he stayed pretty open-minded during his travels. I mean, he would include stereotypes, but like I said earlier, he was willing to go meet people and talk to people and um, talk to the average people, too, and find out what they were doing. He didn't let it stop him from from really experiencing a place. And he knew how to describe things, too. He's known for um, comparing things to vegetables, for instance. Someone everyone can re- <laughs> That's something everyone can relate to. <laughs> exactly, even 400 years later. Yeah. So let us know what you think um, makes a good travel travel writing or, or any travelers. Or your favorite travel stories. Yeah, that's a very good question for you guys. I love to read good travel articles. I'm notorious for buying those um you know, your end anthologies oh, yeah. of best like travel writing. Travel mm-hmm. writing. Cool. So let us know. We're at History Podcast at Discovery.com. And I guess that's a good time to go right to listener mail. Okay, so today we have an email from Kathleen, and she wrote in to suggest that we cover Jean Moulin um, and some French Resistance history, which I have always wanted to, to do at some point. But I wanted to include one little story she shared with us. She said, the reason I'm sending this letter today is that I was prompted to write you by an unusual incident on my drive to work this morning. I was traveling down Olive Avenue in Burbank, California, when I noticed a strange phenomenon. Whenever I stopped for a red light, my public radio station would fade out, and to my surprise and delight, your podcast would fade in. I recognized it immediately. Immediately is the second in the H.H. Holmes two-parter, an episode I hadn't known was out yet and that I'd been anticipating. I thought at first you must have reached a deal to be broadcast on public radio, but later realized what must have happened. Another Mist in History fan must have been driving the exact same route at the exact same time using an FM iPod transmitter to listen through his or her car stereo. I don't use an MP3 player myself, so it couldn't have been coming from me. To add to the unlikeliness of this event, my public radio station couldn't have been more than 0.1 or 0.2 away on the FM number dial from the unassigned number this transmitter chose to broadcast on, or I would never have picked up its transmission. So there you have it. Burbank is so saturated with listeners that it is possible for us to be driving the same route, the same time, only a car length and a fraction of a radio dial number apart. So <laughs> I thought this was pretty fun. And also, I'm so glad Kathleen is the listener, because imagine <laughs> if you, you started hearing the H.H. Holmes podcast while you were driving to work in the morning. It might be a creepy. Little, little creepy. Yeah, yeah. I'd be afraid somebody was messing with me. So <laughs> thank you for, for sharing that story with us, Kathleen. And again, if you guys want to recommend any 
travel writers, your favorite out there, you can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and we are on Facebook. And if you want to explore some of the topics we talked about today a little bit further, we have some great articles about travel on our website, including one that's called Can Travel Make You Happy by our own Amanda Arnold. And you can find it by visiting our homepage, www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.